This is a Hot Pie Media Original. Some of our default responses under pressure are not particularly well suited for the kinds of the pressures that we're facing now, which is a difficult conversation with your spouse or a high stakes meeting with a client or a boss. And it's like, if your bias is to punch this thing in the face to run away, that doesn't work very well. Uh, you know, when you're in those situations, you got to access a- an alternate response. Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Eric Corum, founder of AIM7, and this is The Blueprint. I've spent my life helping Olympic gold medalists, NFL, and NCAA athletes be the best at their craft. Now I'm taking that experience and translating it into your life. This podcast is for busy professionals and household CEOs who care deeply about their family, career, and their health. There's an ocean of content to wade through, but I do the heavy lifting for you and distill cutting-edge science, leadership and life skills into simple tactics optimized for your busy lifestyle and goals. Today, I'm joined by Dane Jensen. Dane is the CEO of Third Factor, an acclaimed speaker and instructor at Queens University and the University of North Carolina. He's also a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review and the author of The Power of Pressure. In addition to his corporate work, Dane works extensively with athletes, coaches, and leaders and across Canada's Olympic and Paralympic sports system to enhance national competitiveness. Today, Dane and I discuss the three components of pressure and how you can take control to act and decide with confidence in the most intense situations. We also discuss how time management is a trap and so much more. But before we get started with that, would you please take a moment, push pause on the podcast, and leave us a comment or review in the Apple Podcast app as this will help us organically grow the podcast and reach more people with the message of the blueprint. But before I get to my discussion with Dane, imagine a team of world-class coaches and scientists focused only on you and your wellness goals. What would that feel like? These experts know exactly what you need today because they are precisely in tune with your mind and body. And that kind of guidance is now available to everyone. AIM7 is a health and fitness app that turns your wearable data into personalized exercise recommendations that lay on top of popular exercise programs like Apple Fitness Plus, Peloton, and F45. And these recommendations prevent burnout and improve long-term fitness. Then the app picks up where wearables fail and it teaches you how to fix your most pressing wellness issues, such as improving your sleep and energy and reducing stress. To get early access to this exclusive program, go to www.aim7.com. That's AIM7.com and sign up now. There are limited spots available each month, so sign up now and reserve yours. But now it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Dane, how do you define pressure? And then what can we do to take control of our mind and our body so that we can act? or make decisions with our full psychophysiological resources available to us in the moment. Okay. So that you really went to zero from a hundred, zero to a hundred right out of the gate. Eric. I appreciate Absolutely. it. Let's not beat around. Let's just get right out of it. So yeah, you know, pressure, it, it, this is always one of the first questions. You know, when I started writing this book on, on pressure, my, my research question to the people I talked to about pressure was a very personal one. And it was, what's the most pressure you've ever been under? And often the first thing people would say to me is, well, you know, do you mean pressure or stress? Like, what what do you mean by pressure? And so I would ask them, I would turn it around and I would say, well, what, you you know, how do you define it? What do you think the difference is between pressure and stress? And I kind of came to this 
sort of metaphor for talking about the difference between pressure and sort of related states like stress, like fear, like grief, because often people would come up with experiences that on reflection, they would go, you know what, I think I was actually just scared there. I don't know if that was pressure or, you know, I was just kind of stressed. I, I would get them to tease apart a little bit. And the metaphor that that kind of stuck for me was the metaphor of a basketball game. And, and I use my own household as an example here. You know, I'm based in Toronto. My wife is a huge Toronto Raptors fan. And, you know, when the Raptors are deep in the playoffs and it's a close game in the fourth quarter, she has to leave the room, uh, you know, because she finds it too stressful to watch. She, she needs to get updates by, by text message, right? That's stress to me. Pressure is for the people that are playing in the game. Pressure is for the people on the court, right? Pressure requires this necessity to act. Uh, and as we'll get into, I'm sure as we go through the conversation, in particular, Pressure is when I need to act in situations that are both important and uncertain. And so that's kind of my working definition of pressure is the outcome's important. I don't know how it's going to go. And I need to do something like I need to take an action to support the outcome. And I think, you know, embedded in that definition is, is, you know, pressure has unique challenges that are associated with it. One of the benefits of pressure over stress where I'm just sitting watching the game, I'm watching my kids playing a game and it's really important and I want them to do well, but I can't do anything about it, is at least with pressure, we can connect with action, right? We can connect with our capacity for influence, our capacity to exert control uh, with what Albert Bindera has called our, our ability you know, to connect with self-efficacy. And so I think when we talk about your second question, you know, how do we start to maintain access to, you know, to our capabilities, to all that we are capable of cognitively, physically, emotionally, I think it comes down to, am I able to access that capacity for influence, for self-efficacy in the moment, or do I just become, you know, my default response to the pressure, right? Do I just become reactive? Do I just go with whatever my default is? And I think that to me makes the difference between pressure as something that is corrosive, pressure that is something that feels overwhelming and heavy is do I feel like I'm able to connect with my capacity for self-efficacy, my ability to influence, or do I end up feeling helpless or just like I can't do anything other than go with my default because I'm so overwhelmed, I'm so you know keyed up in the moment. And so that, most of what we talk about is what are the different strategies for connecting with that self-efficacy? That makes so much sense because we can feel pressure, but you can have confidence when you know you can act. There's nothing 100%. more um, there's nothing more helpless than to feel like, okay, I'm feeling this pressure. I know I need to act, but I can't I can't remember the thing. I, I work so hard at this and it's like it's all out of the it's all out the window. Um, and so I'd love to unpack with you what are some of the things that the people that are listening can do to take control and to have agency in these situations? Well, and, and I, you know, I'll start with where you went, which is, you know, you get in these high pressure situations and you are going like, oh, my God, I, I, I prepared for this. Like, I, I just can't get at it. And I had a very personal experience in this in a job interview early in my career. Um, and, you know, I was trying to break into the field of management consulting, which I ended up working in for the better part of a decade. And I was sitting across the table from a partner at a big consulting firm and I had made it to the final round of interviews. And she was asking me questions and I knew like this was it. This is the final step before you either get the job interview or not. And she would ask me a question and I would go upstairs and it was like, like, you know, just blank space up there. And I, you know, we spent 30 minutes 
her asking me questions, me answering them, you, you know, we finished that thing, shook hands. I knew I wasn't getting the job. She knew I wasn't getting the job. Like this was not a great interview. And of course I leave the interview and like two minutes later when I'm getting in the elevator, as soon as the doors close, I got everything upstairs, right? I got all the answers. I got all the stories. When, when she said this, I should have said that when they told, you know, and, and this is one of the issues under pressure is if we don't intervene, if we don't take action to manage the impact of pressure, it can force us into this attentional tunnel, right? As our sympathetic nervous response gets more and more activated, the brain starts to close the sensory gate. And that's a survival mechanism, right? It, it, you know, the brain wants, needs to filter out anything that's extraneous to, you know, this one kind of thing in front of my face. The problem is, as we kind of move deeper and deeper into that tunnel, as we can absorb and access less and less information, it does not serve us well in most of the high pressure situations that we're dealing with. That tunnel was built for, you know, when our pressure was mostly from physical stressors. It was like, I got to punch this thing in the face to run away. Well, you don't need a lot of attention. You need a lot of adrenaline. You need a lot of oxygenated blood going to your big muscle groups, right? You need dilated pupils. This is the stuff that our, you know, our, our fight, freeze, or flee response was, was built to deal with or evolved to deal with. Instead, we actually need to be able to get out of that attentional tunnel to activate the parasympathetic nervous system and start to get back to this place where we can access all of these, you know, all of these higher order responses. You and are I, you know, my speaking my love language right now. Like, <laughs> uh, you know, this, this state of high alert, you know, stress is really a continuum you know, and, uh, when I think a lot of us have been under stressful situations, maybe a, a situation with our spouse or a loved one, and you start getting the sympathetic activation and you are biased towards action and you really don't control yourself the way you wish. And then you have to put your, yeah. then you have to really go apologize. And so, yeah. you know, you know what I'm saying? Like it, it's, oh, it's a good thing. Yeah. My wife and I got no, no kidding. One time, like, uh, stalked by a mountain lion in Colorado and oh, wow. we had to go and we were on the go for about six hours. And as soon as we got to safety, it was like, we like hit the trail and like almost collapsed, but that system is there wow. for a lot of good reasons. But if you're not, um, if you don't know how to dial things back, you can be almost impulsive. So I'm excited to hear how you, how you help people act in the moment. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, hey, I would love to hear more about that story. That sounds like a great answer to the question. What's the most pressure you've ever been under? Your but, next book. Uh, you but, can ask me. Yeah. I'll put it in there. <laughs> All right. That sounds that sounds great. But yeah, you're absolutely right. And I like I think for me, the you know, the, the you know, you're, you want to escape just like going with whatever the default is, because you're exactly right. Like some of our default responses under pressure are not particularly well suited for the kinds of pressures that we're facing now, which is a difficult conversation with your spouse or a high stakes meeting with a client or a boss. And it's like, if your bias is to punch this thing in the face to run away, that doesn't work very well. Uh, you know, when you're in those situations, you got to access an alternate response. And I think that, you know, the, the, the way I kind of break it down in the book is I, I, I started to just try and look across all of these hundreds of stories that I was hearing when people would tell me about their highest pressure moments and, and look for patterns, basically, because it, 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 initially it doesn't really look like there are too many patterns. Like the, the things that you hear in response to that question range from like a big exam to caring for a dying parent who is, you know, at end of life. It's from like a job interview to a guy who 
you know, swum too far out from shore in the ocean and realized that he didn't think he was going to be able to get back. I mean, you know, on the, on the face of them, these don't have too much in common. When you start to see enough of these things, what you start to realize is they actually all have, you know, one of the three things in common, which is that pressure is a function of importance, uncertainty, and volume. And pretty much any high pressure situation, whether it's a moment or it's a period, can be explained in terms of, okay, how important have I decided that the outcome of this situation is? How uncertain is that outcome? And just how much is there going on right now? How many tasks, how many decisions, how many distractions are kind of surrounding my important uncertain situations? And so when we're in sort of peak pressure moments, like, you know, the, the test, the exam, the Olympic final, the, you know, getting stalked by a mountain lion, these are like violent collisions of importance and uncertainty. Like the outcome is highly important up to and including life or death. And the outcome is also like violently uncertain. I might get the job. I might not get the job, right? I, I, I might ace the presentation and I might, you know, bomb the presentation. I might win the Olympic final. I might fall. Uh, so that combination of acute importance and high uncertainty, those are our sort of peak pressure moments. Then we have the long haul pressure, which is I'm just dealing with this constant volume, this grind of important, uncertain things. And, and that's the way I tend to characterize the last two years, right? For, for many of us, uh, to varying degrees, it's been the grind of the long haul of pressure. And so when I look for kind of intervention points and pressure, it's either importance. Am I accurately gauging the importance of this situation so that I'm not artificially layering on uh, manufactured importance or urgency? Am I relating to uncertainty in a way that is helpful? And we can talk about the trade-offs between direct action and acceptance in a second because there's a delicate balance there. And then with volume, like, you know, am I building myself in a way that I can handle volume while at the same time being really careful around what's the volume that I'm permitting? And is it distracting me from the stuff that really matters? But those are the three sort of entry points. It's brilliant. This is really brilliant. Um, so where do you want to start? Um, do you want to start with short-term pressure? Well, why don't we start with importance? Like if we kind of okay. think about important, and I yeah. can, I'll toggle a little bit between between short-term versus long-haul, because actually, and this is one of the other interesting things, is almost everything to do with pressure, including pressure itself, is like a double-edged sword, right? There, there are positives. To, it's a matter of dosage, right? It's like there are positives associated with it, and at some point, it flips into, okay, this, this is no longer, a, you know, pressure itself. I mean, where do more world records get set than anywhere else in the world of sport? It gets set at the Olympics, right? Because there's pressure, right? Pressure is where do more people fail? Right, right. You know, it's it's this kind of yin and yang, and the same is true of every component of pressure, right? So you take importance. Um, You know, one of the things that really mediates pressure over the long haul is a real understanding of why this matters to me, why this is important to me. And this is something that has been, you know, very well explored over the last decade, uh, you know, with, with the Simon Sinek's of the world. And, you know, we got to start with why we need a connection to purpose. And so over the long haul, we really need to consciously work to imbue the pressure we are under with meaning. We need to see how it's either helping us grow. We need to see how we're contributing as a result of the, we need to see how it's connecting us. It's bringing us closer together, but we've got to consciously search for importance. Otherwise, the long haul starts to feel relentless and and hollow. When you get into the peak pressure moments, though, it's not that you can't find importance. It's like you're getting crushed by importance, right? Like importance is this huge, it's like, oh my God, like, you know, one of the Olympians I talked to, he talked about how on the eve of the Olympic final, 
the fear of failure was so strong that he felt like failure at the Olympics would cascade to failure for the rest of his life. Right. Like, and, and you know, he had built importance up to like, this is not just a race. This is like a referendum on, am I a success or a failure as, as a person? And so when we get into these peak pressure moments, if, you know, over the long haul, it's like pull importance close, pull important. How is this? Why does this matter to me? You know, how is this important? In the peak pressure moments, we got to like completely reverse polarity and start to focus on what's not at stake. Like, what is the stuff that is not going to change for me, regardless of the outcome of this situation? What are the important things in my life that are not at play here? We need to actually unload importance from the scale so that we can start to see things in perspective. And so with importance, there's this sort of tension, which is I have to see what I'm doing as important. Well, at the same time, not getting overwhelmed by what's at stake, right? Having this ability to sort of see it in perspective a little bit. Yeah, because sometimes that <clears throat> that outcome, that thing that you think is so important can debilitate you. And 100%. You know, uh, there's, a, there's a famous cyclist named Sir Chris Hoy. He's the greatest Olympic cyclist of all time. And he said... Yep. He, when he was articulating what it felt like to race in Olympic finals, he said it felt like he was going to the gallows. And this is a guy that's won, I think he won eight or nine Olympic gold medals. But what he would say he would do is he would feel his feet in the clips and he would feel his hands on the steering wheel. And so he would move his brain to a tactile sensation of something he could control. And yeah, uh, that's interesting. But if you've ever, like, you've worked with those athletes and if, uh, yeah. And it is. And that's the difference. Oh, Offline, I have a story for you that I think you may be able to use later on about some sprinters, but uh, we'll talk about that later. Okay. Well, but I think your I think your story about Chris is, is bang on. It's, you know, I often get asked, as I'm sure you do, it's okay, well, what are what are these elite athletes? What are these Olympians? What are they saying to themselves, you know, in the moment before they before they race? And I I, you know, most most, not all of them, but most elite athletes I talk to, the thing they're saying to themselves right before the race is like, why do I do this? Why do I put myself through this? Like, how, like what, what is wrong with you? You know, and, and you're exactly right. Like at that moment, what they need to do, and this gets to uncertainty, which is kind of where we're going next. In that moment, you know, two things have to happen. First is they need to get some perspective on what's really at stake here. Right. Again, to be able to go, yeah, of course, this is important. I've been training my I entire life for this. I loved that when I read it, by the way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because like... What part of it? Well, what's really at stake and what isn't at stake? Yeah. Like right now, we are talking as Ukraine is being invaded, right? Yeah. Like that's a... The stakes are really high. Yeah. Um, if you don't get the job, most of the time... Either you still have a job or there's other opportunities. Uh, you may still have loved ones and family. There's, yeah. you, you see what I'm saying? The next step can come in life. And so yeah. I just really, I resonated with that so much because right now I'm an I'm a early stage founder and I'm doing all these VC pitches and right. talking to angel yeah. investors. And like, I've learned to sell. I haven't had many no's. I've had a lot of like, you know, optionality happening. But right. yeah. uh, that's their job. But when I get a no, I'm like, great, I'm closer to a yes. Next up, mm -hmm. you know, boom. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. when you, I think that was a brilliant point in your book. And by the way, I'm going to just stop for a second and say, if you haven't bought this book, The Power of Pressure, you need to get it because you're going to love it. So go ahead. Sorry, that was a shameless plug. 
<laughs> I appreciate it. I'll yeah. take all yeah, all the shameless plugs that I can get. <laughs> don't, don't be shy, Eric. Yeah, no, but you're bang on. And I think like people sometimes, I think people sometimes think this is like planning for failure. It's like, <laughs> you know, if if you try to diminish the importance of the outcome or like, you know, it's like, oh, don't worry if I fail, everything's going to be okay. And that's not what we're talking about here, in my opinion. You know, it's, it, 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 you, you don't need to, you're not trying to diminish the fact that the, the Olympics is something really important. Of course it is. Like if you try to convince yourself, this isn't important to you, like you're just lying. Something's wrong. Yeah. It, it, but, yeah. but you can at the same time, like Ro- Rosie McLennan, who is, uh, you know, one of the greatest uh, gymnasts uh, in history, two-time Olympic gold medalist in trampoline back-to-back, the first Canadian woman to repeat a gold medal in an individual sport. Um, she has a, a discipline that she goes through that she talked to me about when I interviewed her of writing down what she calls her anchors. And so when she is heading into an Olympic competition, she will physically write out on a piece of paper the things that are important in her life that are not contingent on how she performs at the Olympic Games. You know, this is the love of her partner, her niece, her parents, uh, you know, it, it, all the things that are going to be there one way or another. And she folds up that piece of paper and she tucks it into her uniform when she's competing. Because she wants to be able to maintain that perspective on, you know, yeah, this is important to me. And, you know, there is other stuff out there. There, there is bigger stuff, you know, that is more stable, more consistent. So that to me is part of the importance conversation is like, you got to be able to see the scales and balance of like, what's at stake here and what's not. And then the second piece is you have to be able to, um, you know, I talk about it as deflating manufactured importance. You know, so it's like, okay, yeah, I've got my anchors. I'm still going to have my health. I'm still going to have my loved ones. You know, sometimes you get there and you're still kind of like, okay, that's great. But like, oh my God, this is still really terrifying. And that, then you have to kind of go through and audit is the stuff that I'm really, you know, thinking about are the worst case scenarios I'm envisioning. Are they plausible? Are they realistic? Like, is, is me screwing up this meeting really going to destroy my relationship with my boss? Uh, Probably not. We got a 10 year history. Like, that's probably not a realistic, you know, thing. I'm manufacturing that importance. Or is this the cascading sequence that I am envisioning at three in the morning when I'm lying awake of like, oh my God, if I don't get this job, then I'm never going to get a job. And if I don't ever get a job, like I'm going to lose my house and I'm going to be homeless like five years from now. Like, is that really at stake as I walk into this job interview? So it, it's not about denying importance. It is about widening the aperture and going like, okay, when I go into these high stakes situations, I often get so narrow that all I'm thinking about is this one little piece of the puzzle that's at stake and it starts to feel all consuming. If I can zoom out a little bit and start to see my life with a broader perspective, that's what allows me to kind of get out of the overwhelm that can sometimes come from importance. High performance isn't just reserved for elite athletes or those with unlimited funds. In my free newsletter adaptation, I provide you with curated information and resources to improve your health, well-being, and performance. I cover topics like sleep and stress and exercise, nutrition and mental performance. You can sign up today for this free newsletter at www.ericcorum.com. Now back to the show. I love that widening the aperture because we can get into these, you know, chasing the rabbit, right? And I, yeah. I've mindfulness has really helped me with this. Is mm-hmm. you know. A lot of people, I say early days of mindfulness, like, you know, I say early, it's been around for a long, like thousands of years, right? Meditation, but like the commercialization of mindfulness in the, probably the 2010s, um, you know, people were like, oh, this is something mystical Easter. No, it's just putting your attention where you want it. Right. 
And that helps me so much. I found myself in an inner monologue sometimes. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, that's not even real. Okay, let's get back to reality (laughs) here, right? And then it's like, why did I just do that? And so I think that's a beautiful thing to say, like, hey, let's get, let's anchor ourselves in reality. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, this is a good bridge, Eric, from kind of importance to uncertainty, because, you know, once you notice your thought patterns, there are two different ways that you can kind of work with it, right? I mean, so one is, you do the kind of cognitive exercise that I just talked about, which is like, man, I'm way overloading importance here. Like, let's make sure I'm seeing this in perspective. I'm broadening the aperture. Sometimes what you want to do though, is, is get out of your head. And that's the Chris thing, right? Which is like, feel my feet in the clips of the bike, feel where my hands are making contact with the, you know, with the, with the, the handlebar, like all that kind of stuff, because now you're starting to get out of the realm of, uh, of helplessness and into the realm of control. Mm. And I think, you know, when we're in our peak pressure moments, the the number one thing with uncertainty is like eliminated as much as possible. Redirect your attention from what you can't control to what you can control and act on the thing that you can control. And I, the the metaphor that has really stuck with me on this one is I was uh, talking to a guy named Martin Reeder, who's an, an Olympic beach volleyball player. And he was talking to me about qualifying for Rio in 2016. And he knew that him and his partner were going to have to go down in order to qualify. They were going to have to go into Mexico and beat the Mexican team. And he said, like, this is going to be a real tall order because Mexico is a really good team. And we knew the crowd was going to be really hostile. And that sometimes bleeds over into the officiating. Like we knew it was going to be a tough match. And he said in beach volleyball, you know, there's a lot of stuff out of your control, right? The weather's out of your control. The opponents are out of your control. The officiating's out of your control. The crowd's out of your control. You are literally standing on, on shifting sands. Like it's not a metaphor. It's actually a pile of shifting sand. He said, you know, the only thing that's in your control is the serve. Like when you are standing behind the service line with the ball, that's the, that's the moment you're in control. And so we talked about in preparation for Mexico, they, they practiced for six solid months. They practiced this really non-traditional serve. And at a key moment in, in the third game at the Olympic qualifier, he moved to this complete other side of the service line. He served a ball that they had no idea was coming for an ace. And, and that's what punched their ticket to, to Rio. And, and he talked to me about this. And he said, you know, from, from that moment on, whenever I'm in a situation where I feel like a lot of things are out of my control, I ask myself, what is your serve? Like, what is your serve? And I think when you talk about consciously directing your attention, how do we direct our attention inwardly? We do it with questions, right? Questions are the best way that we know of to direct our attention. You know, the, the, the command is, is helpful, like focus on this, calm down. But, but it's actually the question that is an anchor for our attention. So when I go, what's my serve? All of a sudden that starts to break the thought loops that are focused on what I can't control. And it redirects my attention to like, what's the one thing that's equivalent of me standing behind the service line with the ball? And often that's, that's awesome. going to be... Yeah, it's like I love it. I use like I shamelessly borrowed. I was about to say I'd use that with so many people. I make a T-shirt out of that. Yeah, it's like what's your serve here, right? Like, do you what what is your serve? Do you find that when you have moments like that in life where you were able to okay, I did the thing, I use these tools that that builds confidence for the next time, where you can go back and go, I did this before, it it ain't gonna kill me. I can do this. Like, do you find that with people that you work with? 100%. 100%. And in particular, <laughs> I'm going to sound a bit like a broken record. Like that's another one of my favorite questions, which is what is my average? And, and once you have done something enough, 
and this is me at this point in my career with, with public speaking. Um, I, I stole this question from Brian Orser, who was on the Canadian side of the, the, the Battle of the Bryants in Calgary in 88, which, you know, this is a figure skating uh, reference, which some of you may get. Some of I you remember not, this. Yeah. So Battle Brian of Brian Boitano and what? Exactly. Exactly. Brian Boitano, Brian Orser. Orser was the reigning Lots world champion. Hair. Lots of hair. <laughs> you know, now both flag bearers for the U.S. team, for the Canadian yeah. team. Orser is the reigning world champion, but Boitano was the reigning Olympic champion from 84. Like, huge news. Uh, anyways, Orser's gone on, uh, Boitano won the gold, Orser won the silver, it came down to one judge in the long program. It's one of the greatest, you know, individual, for my money, by the way, like figures, it doesn't get any higher pressure than figure skating. It's like you, it's just you out there on the ice. There is no coach. There is no team. Like it's five minutes. It's a massive sheet of ice. It's like, anyways, it, it, it's, it's, it's a really interesting sport. From That's a awfully Canadian of you. Cause the farther yeah. South you'd go with the more they would go to like track and field. <laughs> <laughs> fair. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, fair. Fair point. It have to but do so, with cold weather and ice. I love that. Yeah. That's actually, yeah. It's all, it's yeah. all like hockey, speed skating and, yeah. and figure skating. Uh, so he, he, Orser is amazing. He's got him and his partner, Tracy Wilson, who's also an Olympic medalist. They, they've gone on to found one of the big uh, figure skating coaching clubs in the world. Anyways, what I took from my conversation with him is his whole question was before he stepped on the ice, he would just try to, he would ask himself, what's my average? And the answer would come back, your average is like incredible, right? Like I, I look back over the last 10, 15, 20 skates that I've done, my average is like a 98 out of 100. And so his inner voice was like, I don't, I don't need to do anything other than my average, right? If I go out and do my average, my average is so good that it's going to be enough to win. And so I think that's for me, that's the, you know, when you talk about the confidence that comes from doing it a few times. I think what freaks people out with uncertainty is they're like, oh my God, I got to have the game of my life today, right? Like if I want to do this, everything has to come together versus if you've done the work and you've done this a few times, it's like, I got to do my average, right? And if I do my average, that's going to be good. That's going to, and so, you know, we were talking a little bit beforehand about like free solo, right? Alex Honnold's not going out there going like, all right, I got to do something totally abnormal for me or I'm going to die. He's going out there and he's going, I've done this like 20 times before. If I do what I know how to do, this is going to be a success, right? That's the, what's my average question uh, from my perspective. And you're, you're, you're dropping some dimes today with the serve and the average. This is good. As a sports <laughs> fanatic, this is, this is great stuff. I hope those that are listening to can start to think you should probably take five minutes, 10 minutes and go like, Hey, what is a moment that I've done something, a breakthrough moment for your serve. Right. And then yep. look, look at the history of my life in areas that I need to perform in and consider what my average is. Cause the best of all time. I was actually listening to this something yesterday. I think it was some st static. Oh, it was um, Mark Andreessen with Andreessen yeah. Horowitz, like one of the best investors of all time. He created Netscape. His latest funds, almost a billion dollars. Pretty nuts. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> he was talking about, if you look at sports, the people that shot, that have the highest goals per game, like in basketball, are also the people that miss the most. Right. Like, because they have to have shots. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah. it, you know, Brett Favre, amazing quarterback threw a ton of interceptions. Yeah. Now yeah. he's a little bit more, but my point is, is like, shoot your shot. Right. And then like, look <laughs> back and be like, you know, this is, this is who I am and I can perform. I love it. It's great stuff. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, there's two parts to uncertainty and you're getting at the second part, which is, you know, so the first thing with uncertainty is, 
what's my serve? It's like, where can I act, get myself out of the stuff that I can't control, which is typically outcomes and results and into the stuff that I can't control, which is always behavior perspective, you know, it's process, it's routine. But the second part of uncertainty is, again, you know, I talked about the whole double-edged sword of this stuff. If I try to control all of the uncertainty, like if that just becomes my default mode, it's like see hill, take hill. Like, you know, I'm going to burn out because you can't, you cannot control all the uncertainty. And so, you know, when we, when we switch to the long haul, it, it becomes a little bit less of like constantly acting to tame uncertainty and more about what you're talking about, which is we just have to accept the fact that there is uncertainty that cannot be tamed. No matter how good I get, I'm going to miss some shots, right? I, I'm going to throw some interceptions. I'm going to, you know, whiff on a few investment deals. Like I'm going to have the conversation in a meeting where I show up really unproductively. And it's, you know, like I'm going to have some of those things. And I got to be able to accept the fact that this uncertainty and even embrace it a little bit, right? That it's part of the process. And, and it, you know, the metaphor, again, because I love to, to have little sticky things that people can kind of remember. The one that, that I, I love for this one, I stole from improv. So there, there is this improv game uh, that is called Fortunately Unfortunately. And the way it works is somebody, you know, one of the improv guys has to start the story with fortunately. So like, fortunately, I found a hundred bucks on the ground. The partner then has to build on that with unfortunately. So like, unfortunately, when you bent down, you suffered a hernia, right? Like, and then back and <laughs> forth, right? It's like, fortunately this, unfortunately that. I have come to believe that this is like, this game is the, the perfect metaphor for life. Like literally the perfect metaphor. We are all in the middle of this game of like, fortunately, this happened. Well, unfortunately, this happened as a result. Well, fortunately, like we are, you know, you talk about your journey with investing, right? It's like, well, unfortunately, I got to know there, but fortunately that redirected me. And I, you know, everything is this back and forth. And so when we are in this, A, I think just, just holding that and choosing to see setbacks as inflection points, like, oh, this is the unfortunately that comes before the fortunately. I think that's kind of like a perspective shift piece that is helpful in terms of embracing, uh, you know, the uncertainty instead of trying to rage against it and, and just continuously try to act on it. I think that's a really important part of the, the long haul pressure. I love it. This is the unfortunate become before the fortunate. So it's kind of like, I love this. I'm going to be using this a lot. I need to put this on my wall somewhere. I have tons <laughs> of whiteboards around me that you can't see. And I put reminder phrases up there. So that's, that's great. So we have uncertainty. Okay. That we need to be able to, uh, so we have importance, we have uncertainty. And then the third one is what volume. And that kind of depends on, yeah. that's like the difference between long haul and short term. Is that, am I correct? Yeah. I mean, volume, volume can be there in, in short term pressure, but it, it tends to be more pronounced over the long haul. And volume is just like the sheer weight of, you know, how many important uncertain things am I dealing with at one time? Like how many tasks, how many decisions, how many distractions are kind of layered on top of me? And so what I found, like, you know, the pandemic's been a good example for this is I think initially it presented kind of like a peak pressure moment in the first like month or whatever. It was like, oh my God, this is hugely important. It's highly uncertain. Lock it down, you know, travel bans, like everything was like, and then it, it moved into this just kind of like unrelenting grind of just the volume of stuff. And in particular, the volume of decisions that just had to be made in, in the course of life. Now, those are starting to recede a little bit now that restrictions are large, but like we were, we were just in constant decision fatigue, which is a form of volume pressure where it's like, okay, am I going to 
send my kids to school or not? Can I go and see my elderly relatives or not? Am I going to go back into the office or are we going to, you know, are we going to do this virtually or are we going to do it in person? Okay, well, if we do it in person, what's our policy going to be around masking, around vaccine? Well, what's that, you know, what are the implications of that going to be? And so all, I think we were just all like carrying around <laughs> so many decisions that in the past were not decisions. It was just like automatic stuff that we did. And I think that the volume from that can can create significant pressure. When we feel like we have to make decisions around important stuff with uncertain information, that starts to manifest as pressure a little bit. And, and I think the challenge with volume is when we have volume pressure, like we're just getting really weighed down by how many projects we've taken on, balancing home and work life, like all that kind of stuff. Often the solution that we turn to is, is time management because it seems quite logical. It's like, okay, I got a lot to do. I need to get more efficient. I need to be better at time management. The problem is that time management is a trap, right? What happens to people who get really good at time management? Do they get more volume or do they get less volume? Probably get, get more, more volume. Yeah, they get more volume, right? The better you get at time management, the, the more, you know, ends up flowing your way, especially in large organizations, right? There's a, there's a great Dilbert comic that I often use. Um, where there's a, a guy interviewing for a job with the, with the boss. And he says to the boss, he goes, you know, how do you guys reward your high performers around here? And the boss says, oh, we load them up with work until they become average performers, <laughs> right? And that's, that to me is the, the, the time management problem. Uh, and so I, I'm not crapping all over time management. Time management is a good productivity strategy. It's not a pressure strategy. It just creates more room for more volume to get at it. And so we need, you know, we need to kind of get out of the time management trap in the face of volume and get really good at ruthlessly prioritizing, like, what are the tasks I'm going to permit? What am I going to say yes to? What are the decisions that I'm making? And can they be replaced with absolute principles? If I keep having to make the same kinds of decisions over and over again, can I replace them with principles? And then how do I create environments where I'm not getting distracted, right? Where I don't have to use my willpower to fight off distractibility. I'm actually creating environments that make it hard for me to be distracted. This is like 15 podcasts in one episode because that, that's a whole, that's <laughs> oh, yeah, a whole there's thing a lot. right there, especially as you take on, first of all, thank you for saying yes to this podcast is something <laughs> that you would say yes to, but no, you're right. You have to say no. And then which you, the, the willpower thing is so huge. Like, especially with just having, there was a study that was like, just having your cell phone in view reduces yep. your productivity on the table turned over. <laughs> Because yeah. it's it, there's this constant thing, this like ping going back and forth, like sonar, like ding, it's there, it's there, it's totally there. check something. And um, I hate it. I really wish somehow I could go back to like you know '90s or early 2000s when you know the 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 BlackBerry where I could text by not looking at the phone, and then mm -hmm. that was it. You know, I had to wait yep. to get email. And so I'm building. I'm getting better at this, but you're so right. It just mounts. And no, it, it does. You don't get anything done. Yeah, it's it's insane. We, I, you know, a, a friend of mine uh, and I, w actually, just this past weekend, like three days ago, we we pulled out our phones and we were looking at our screen time reports together because he was like, "How much? Like, how much are you? Like, where are you at?" Because you, you get these reports and you're kind of like, "That sounds like a lot. Like, am I? You know, am I average? Am I above that? You know?" So we were we literally like pulled it out, pulled out the phones, and we're like, "Okay, like." And and he has an Android one, and I got an iPhone. So they were a little bit different reports, but his has this report on notifications. Uh, how many daily notifications is he receiving? 
And we went through and his average for the last seven days was somewhere around 400 to 450 notifications oh, a day. And so we worked it out. We brought up the calculator and he's like, you know, if I assume I'm a, you know, awake at 15 hours or, you know, 16 hours, like it basically worked out to, to one notification every three minutes, like for the duration of being awake, you know, over a one week period. And it's like, so first of all, that's insane. Second of all, if you are trying to tune out 400 notifications a day using only willpower, you are going to fail. Like, you know, the people that are sitting designing these notifications in Silicon Valley, these are incredibly intelligent, well-paid people who think about one thing and one thing only, which is what can I learn from the latest advances in neuroscience that will help me distract this person? Because what I'm monetizing is their attention and their time. And, and like to think that I'm going to defeat that with my willpower is ludicrous. So I think you're right. It's like, how do I metaphorically kind of go back to a time when I, I, I didn't need willpower for this? And for what me, this used do? to happen on the plane. Well, yeah. So great, great question. This is an area where I think I suck at this stuff. So I got ideas. Uh, I got ideas, but I don't know. I don't know if I've cracked the code on this one yet. I mean, I used to love traveling by plane because it created an indistractable environment. There was no internet. Like it required no willpower. No email could come in. Like that's when I would get a lot of my deep work done. I was traveling for speaking and teaching a lot. And it was like, okay, every week I'm going to have 12 hours on a plane where I can do really deep work and, and, you know, and be creative. I think the stuff that I'm doing is pretty consistent with what uh, a lot of the research would tell you, which is calendar blocking. So really creating periods in my calendar where I am going on do not disturb. I'm turning airplane mode on and I'm committing for an hour and a half, two hours to just focusing on processing stuff that requires deep thought, deep work. Uh, I'm rigorous around the notification settings on my devices. So I don't permit really very, my, my notifications were a lot lower than the guys I was comparing with because I really just do like uh, text messages from my close inner circle and kind of work emails during work hours, everything else I try to shut off. Um, but even with that, I don't think I've cracked the code, honestly. I, what do you do? Do you have any good ideas? <laughs> I'm same thing. So I try to use my Ultradian rhythm, Ultradian cycles, the 90 minute Ultradian cycles yep. is kind of a heuristic of 90 minutes of work, take a break. I get, I'm less hard on myself now about breaks than I've ever been. I go walk around the yeah, that's block. Interesting. I, yeah. That's good about being in Texas. You can go outside right now. Yeah. It's cold in Canada, but yeah, I go outside. So 90 minutes, we know that there's this waxing and waning of attention. And so yep. uh, 90 minutes of hard work, I have three big things I need to get done every day. And I try to get them done as early as I can. And I'm trying to make room in my schedule where like I have hours in the day that aren't booked for anything because I know that they're going to get booked or there's yeah. something that comes up. That I'm like, Oh man, I need to push this down. I need to hammer down and get this done. Um, yeah. And then trying to stay off my phone and okay, I'm going to do the, I have to post on social media to grow. Um, I'll batch some stuff and do it ahead of time. So I'm not even yep. doing it during the week, you know, get on yep. there, engage, but, um, yeah, 90 minute, 90 minute old trading cycles, take a break, go get on portrait mode, my brain, go relax. Don't think about anything. Come back, harness my attention and focus. Um, I like to get started early in the morning. I'm usually starting my day by 7am as far as working because I'm mm -hmm. the most productive between like seven and 11 mm -hmm. and then I'll go eat, work out, come back and then do some stuff that's less hard. Is that, a, is that a good phrase? That is but, good. Yeah, no, yeah. that is good.
Well, and I think like that, you know, that's, that's super interesting. And I love the notion of, I'm a, I'm a big believer in the old trading, you know, 90 to 120 minutes followed by 10 to 15 minutes, do something that, uh, you know, the Tony, Tony Schwartz, Jim Lair stuff of, you know, something that replenishes energy, physical, spiritual, emotional, you know, cognitive. Mm-hmm. I love, I think that's a really, really good way to work and figuring out what works for you. Yes. Like one of the insights, you know, you always hear about Nighthawks versus morning, you know, uh, morning people. I, I never really understood the underpinnings of that until I read uh, Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker, which uh, which is a book I'd recommend to anybody um, who wants to go a little bit deep on sleep. But what he talks about is, and it's funny how much of this stuff goes back to you know evolutionary biology, is he's like the tribes that did really well, they all had to keep watch overnight. And it was really beneficial at the collective level to have some people that were more alert deep into the night and other people that were more alert in the early morning because you could shift off like, okay, who's going to take the night watch? Who's going to take the early morning watch? And so, you know, people have actually evolved to have different levels of wakefulness in the early morning versus night. And so knowing which one of those you are uh, is actually really helpful. Like I actually have a, a different style. Like I'm not great early in the morning. I tend to get really productive 10 to midnight. Uh, like I, I, you know, I have a pretty solid block often many nights where it's like from 10 to 12, I'll actually get a fair bit of productive work done. Uh, I typically wake up at 7:20, get the kids off to school. I don't really start my working day until a little bit later after the kids are off to school. And I do think there's like a, a real social judgment. It is one of the things he tackles in the book is that like, you know, are you in the 4:30 AM club? Like, are you a morning person early oh, to bed, early I'm, to I'm rise back you know? on that? Completely. <laughs> so anyways, I think that like knowing yourself and knowing like, when is your, you know, productive time, when is your creative time, uh, and, and being able to schedule in a way that harnesses that I think it's, I think is really interesting. This is, this has been a phenomenal conversation, Dane, where can people find you, uh, and learn more about the work that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So you can find me uh, on Twitter at Dane Jensen. Uh, I post a lot on LinkedIn, uh, also just under my name, Dane Jensen. Uh, And then you can find more about my book, my speaking, all that kind of stuff at danejensen.com. So as long as you remember my name, you're you're in good shape. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we'll put that in the show notes. And then I highly recommend the book, The Power of Pressure. Super tactical, easy read. Um, It's digestible. I think you did a wonderful job on this book. And thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure, Eric. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. If you found today's episode useful, check out episode number 72 with my friend Clint Bruce, former Naval Special Warfare Officer and graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. This has been one of our most listened to podcasts. It's called The Process of Pursuing Elite, and I definitely know you're going to find it useful. Thanks for joining us today, and I'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes and all of our other Hot Pie Media originals baked fresh daily at our home online at hotpiemedia.com, the Hot Pie Media YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to podcasts.